Hello Sword People, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Natasha Bennett, curator of Asian and African collections at the Royal Armouries in Leeds, and author of many papers such as A Consideration of a Series of X-Rays of Asian Pivoted Matchlock Mechanisms, Arms and Armour, Volume 10, Number 1, and Armour for an Age of Peace in the anthology of lectures given for the making of the samurai in Tokugawa, Japan. So, some interesting technical areas there. So, without further ado, Natasha, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. And am I right in thinking you are actually in Leeds? Uh, I am uh, currently north of Leeds. I'm doing this from my office at home. Um, so as with most institutions coming out of uh, COVID, we've all had to slightly readjust the ways that we work. So I am back in the museum on certain days, um, but particularly for things like this, um, it actually turns out it's probably better to do it from home. So... Fair enough. Yes. So you must uh, miss being surrounded by the swords. I do. <laughs> Lockdown was torture from that perspective. It is so hard to do a collections-based job and not actually be able to touch the collection or be with the collection or see the collection. It's it's awful. Um, <laughs> so uh, huge, huge relief to be back on site on a regular basis and be able to have access to the objects that it is my job to work with um so, so you, you can't sneakily fill up your car with them and take them home to kind of look after them at home for a bit unfortunately not it's so tempting on occasion um but no uh, unfortunately i think our registrar <laughs> probably have something to say about that i don't think i can provide quite the conditions necessary for uh, adequate maintenance of prime collection objects but but if if we see you walking out of the museum one day with very stiff legs so your knees don't bend there's probably a a sword down each trouser leg yeah um although having said that a lot of the swords that i work with aren't really a suitable shape for doing that so i'd have very unless i was wearing a sort of large marquee type skirt i think things might stick out in slightly (laughs) (laughs) okay so so i'm not i'm definitely not trying to to uh persuade you to nick stuff from the royal armories but i mean the, 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 the temptation must be extreme um okay so you first appeared on my radar when one of my students mentioned your research into Giselles ages ago. Um, and that's a pretty niche area. So I have to ask it, what drew you to Giselles? And what is a Giselle? Because some people won't know. Um, I'm really interested that you've asked that because I seem to have had a huge number of conversations about Giselle recently. Probably more than I think I've ever had in my entire time at the armories, and that's over a decade now. Um, Now, I don't know if it... I I do wonder if your student might actually have meant my sort of broader work on Asian matchlocks, because I personally can't claim to have investigated the Giselle in any massive depth myself um, yet. Quite probably. Um, But I can... So... 
you know, I can I can go into them a little bit. Um, uh, so for those who don't know, um, a Gisele is um, the kind of typical um, long musket um, that is associated uh, with um, Afghanistan and the surrounding areas. And when you first look at it, um, the major feature that immediately stands out on most of them is that they have these very pronounced curved um, butt um so the stock sort of curves down in in a very obvious fashion um it's far more um pronounced than you get on a lot of asian um firearms um they usually come with uh matchlock um or flintlock mechanisms um and they're quite famous for being quite um well it, it, famous in in sort of contemporary accounts for being quite accurate weapons um now the the reason that I've been talking about this quite a lot is that um I had contact from um well I've had a couple of inquiries about them just that have, have come in um and just seem to have adhered to the same topic randomly which happens sometimes uh, but I've also had a, an ongoing conversation with a gentleman who is um uh, he's a private collector and he um, got in touch to ask whether um, the Gisele had been officially tested, um, partly as, as as kind of British army investigations into the efficacy of the Afghan Gisele. Um And he he's clearly looked at this in far more detail than I have. Um, so it's, a, it's an online forum thread that he's currently running um i think it's entitled the main title is a, f- a 15 rupee jazile um and he's currently um undertaking quite methodical testing um of how wow. effective that weapon is in practical terms mm. um he's taking quite a scientific approach now obviously this isn't anything to do with the armories i i so, i can't kind of um you're not allowed to shoot the guns or, uh, uh, pardon <laughs> You're not allowed to shoot the guns. No, I'm not. <laughs> well, no, no, we do sometimes. Um, okay. It depends what part of the collection they belong to and whether they're uh, kind of classified as fit for um, practical testing. Um, but so uh, my colleagues in, in the firearms department, um, they do do quite a lot of that activity. Um, uh, so they have tested guns, but I don't think we've tested a Gisele. Um, but um, now, as I say, this uh, I'm, I'm fascinated to find out what the continuing results are from this thread. Um, so I, I, I can't officially endorse it, obviously. But um, <laughs> yeah. if anybody's interested in Giselle, that's that's the place to go and have a look and see what's um, what, progressing what with that. What platform is it on? Um, I think it's British Military Forum. Or something. Okay. Um, but a search for 15 rupees Gisele. Yeah, that should bring it up. That should bring okay. it up. Um, but for myself, um, more generally, um, the the research that I think your student might have been talking about was what I um, produced for my very first published article as a curator. Oh, wow. um, and the, the reason that came about was because um, when I first started at the armories, um the museum sent out a group of um, uh, Asian and European matchlocks to Oman for an exhibition on the matchlock. Um, And um, 
it was it was quite an eclectic selection. Um, as I say, drawn from across Europe and Asia. Um, and as part of the investigative work that happened beforehand, our conservation team actually x-rayed all of the pieces that were oh. being sent out. Um, I, I mean, they, want, they wanted to know what was going on inside. Um, one of our conservators um, presented quite a scientifically oriented study um, about how the mechanisms were assembled and how they could be disassembled and, and um, how they were secured in the stocks and everything. Um, and it was the first time, really, um, that I'd sort of worked, well, looked at x-rays from this kind of perspective before. Um, I'd, I'd never really played around with the potential for um, sort of looking beneath the surface of arms and armour to find out what's going on out of view of, you know, our, our naked eye. Um, so... Um, I, what I was personally really interested in um, was what they so taking the uh, taking the Asian matchlocks um, with the very simple pivoted matchlock mechanisms as a kind of group. I wanted to see how well, whether the the X rays would shed any light um, over geographical similarities and variations within those mechanisms. Um, in ways that you, you just can't see if you just look at the gun um, in normal circumstances. Because normally all you can see with an assembled matchlock is um, the kind of serpentine protruding out from the top um, and the trigger. Um, you, you can't you can't see what how it's assembled inside. So I thought I'd sort of look at this group and try and track those features um, and see if any conclusions could be drawn about how the technology was transmitted across Asia and developed and refined in different ways, or whether it was all kind of a blanket approach and there was no variation at all. Um, so, um, I mean, the sample that I used, it wasn't comprehensive enough to do anything other than make quite fledgling observations um, and draw some initial conclusions, but it, it, it was enough to generate some ideas um, and what I kind of ascertained from the, the objects that I looked at um, was that, very interestingly, progress within the matchlock world in Asia seemed to be defined by a simplification of the mechanism. Oh. So the, the the technology that initially um, came over and seems to... so. The the um, the Turkish empires um, uh, kind of picked up uh, the initial um, matchlock idea from European firearms technology, saw the benefits and developed it into their own um, very effective matchlock mechanism, um, which kind of was operated by a series of pivoted linkages, um, which the X-rays show up very very clearly. Um, and it's it's quite simple, but there's quite a few components to it. Whereas you go forward a couple of centuries and you look at um, matchlock mechanisms which were still in active use in many parts of Asia, um, and you sort of you start to get an idea that that they've actually been um, refined through simplification. Um, so they're still regarded as as kind of active, functional um, 
weapons which were quite often the preferred right. choice they had access to various other different types of firearms technology um you know they, they had awareness of developments um flintlock mechanisms uh, percussion mechanisms were all produced and used um on quite a large scale but matchlocks were still in this active role um even though in Tur- in the turkish empire which had been the kind of initial instigator of this um, from the Asian perspective and had transmitted and conveyed it across um, the Asian continent um, that they'd they'd very quickly kind of parked the matchlock um, yeah. they'd they'd moved on um, and converted most of their firearms um, to the Mikolai lock um, so uh, <laughs> it's a flintlock mechanism and um the way you can sort of tell um tell um a typical typical turkish mikolay um uh lock is that the um the spring the main spring is visible on the outside of the stock um so with a lot of european snap locks um the 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 sort of spring element is encased um whereas with Turkish Michelais everything is on the outside um so it's it's you know it's it's visible and you can see its operation um so uh where was I oh uh yeah so it, it with with the continuation of the matchlock um with Indian matchlock a lot of South Asian matchlock mechanisms for example the whole kind of structure becomes far more elongated partly to fit in with the stock shape um, but also because it reduces the number of linkages within the overall workings um, and it just focuses on one sort of main spring section which is integral to the overall matchlock mechanism um, it's a, so I mean that's that's a very simple example um, but the South Asian matchlock was ubiquitous it, 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 it was you know it was used everywhere um, and I just found it really interesting that they actively continued to deploy this technology and their way of developing it was to make it even simpler and easier to use. It, it didn't become more complex. It, it, it didn't become more labour-intensive to produce. Um, it, 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 it wasn't more complicated. Part of the reason the matchlock was so successful was because it it was um, it worked, um, particularly in the climates that it was being... Um, used in it it didn't miss fire um there's there's accounts of arab um bedouin for example replacing flintlock mechanisms with matchlock mechanisms wow um because they they just preferred them so they they actually took a what what would in some lights be considered a, a, a step backwards but for them it was it made eminent good sense because the the mechanism was reliable it was easy to fix if it went wrong it didn't need as much input in terms of resources um it's, it's that age-old mantra if it ain't broke don't fix it um <laughs> Yeah, so tell, tell that <laughs> to the people who, who invented the SA80. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so that that was um, sorry. That's a very long-winded uh, kind no, of overview good. of my uh, the the research that I think might have um, triggered that question. Um, if if it was specifically about Jazile, I've n- no. 
uh, I can't add anything in that amount of depth. <laughs> uh, okay, I, I have a question for you. Is the Gisile the kind of real-world model for the Sand People's rifles in Star Wars? Oh, gosh. You're talk- <laughs> you're talk- I'm sorry, I'm going to commit absolute I, sacrilege here. You are talking to the person who gets Star Trek mixed up with Star Wars. Very well. Then, then, then we will just draw a polite veil. <laughs> I'm so sorry for that. For all the popular culture, uh, you need my colleagues Jonathan Ferguson and Bob Woosnam Savage. Um, okay. I, I, Fair enough. I'm, right. I'm, I'm a, an absolute luddite when it comes to um, current cultural That's, trends. This, is, this isn't actually a Star Wars podcast. Which is, we're all about the kind of historical arms and other stuff, so you're absolutely fine. Thank Don't you, worry. thank you. Oh, that makes me feel so right. much better. <laughs> but I, 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 find it, I find it fascinating that, that, the, um, that the older technology worked better in some areas, and yes. so they went back to it. Well, um, it's, it's not even that they went back to it, they just continued it. Um that you know they adopted it um around the 16th century um and it carried on in practical use for 2 300 years i mean they were still being used in the late 19th early 20th centuries in many parts of the world um okay. and and uh, as genuine functional weapons right excellent and and you know we are very much in favor of this sort of thing on this show because you know we're all about taking old weapons and making them work again so if, they, if they've never gone out of service in the first place that's even better it's very true yeah um okay i interviewed toby catwell recently and you must know him i do yes yeah. um and he started working for the armories as a jouster that's how he got into the business right and i don't think that's how you got started as a curator um correct me if i'm wrong so how how did you get started and what is what actually is the job? <laughs> I really really wish that my entry into the curatorial profession had been half so romantic and dramatic as Toby's. Um no, he really is the sort of all-rounded curator because he he practices as well as mm-hmm has has the yeah. book learning um apart from an obvious shared love of horses which was one of the main reasons that I got interested in the area that I am interested in um my route in was considerably more standard um it just involved f- progressing from step to step working very hard um and getting as much relevant experience as possible before I landed um a post um so i did a history ba at durham university um and then i worked for the local library and then i went into publishing for a short time and neither of those felt like a career that i could see myself in long term but what they did do was give me very very useful skills that i could then apply to my curatorial role um So I then took the plunge and I went back to university and did a master's in museum studies. Um, And I did various um, sort of volunteer placements during that time to get as broad a range of experience as possible. 
Um, and then I was very, very lucky to um, secure an internship at the VNA um, for six months as part as one of um, part of one of their exhibitions teams. Um, so that sort of gave me a big step up. And then just when I was coming to the end of that, um, a sort of entry level curatorial role was advertised at the Armouries. Um, and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, I don't stand a chance, um, but it's my dream job. I, I, know, I know it sounds really cliche to say it, but it is my dream job and I will regret it forever if I don't apply. Um, so the role was for a curatorial assistant. Um, so right in at the bottom. Um, but it, interestingly, there was the kind of um idea that this role would come to specialize um in um supporting the asian and african collections um and i've just worked my way up from there really um in an attempt to um do justice to it ever since um so i started in 2011 um as a curatorial assistant and then i moved up to assistant curator and then I was acting curator because my predecessor, Tom Richardson, who was the keeper of um, Armour and um, what we termed the Oriental Collections, um, he he became deputy master. Um, so obviously, you know, they needed somebody to take responsibility. Um, and then I was confirmed as curator um, a few years Excellent. ago. So, um, yeah, it's, it was literally climbing the ladder for me. Um, but working up from the bottom like that means that um, you get that essential grounding in all aspects of the role. Um, and so now my, my, my day-to-day job is it's so varied um, and I fully appreciate how lucky I am to be able to say that um, it's, it's brilliant so my my primary function is to help safeguard um present uh and develop the asian african and african arms and armor at the royal armories um and a big part of that is furthering the specialist knowledge and engagement within that remit mm-hmm. um so i research and write publications display and exhibition content um, seminar presentations, talks. Uh, I answer inquiries from the public and other organisations and institutions who come to us for quite special because we're quite a specialist collection. They come to us for the niche advice that they can't necessarily source um, from other institutions. Um, I supervise visitors who need access to the study collections um, and help with identifying objects. Um, I'm involved with filming projects, um, which can, you know, be hugely varied um, in what they undertake. It can be, um, you know, I've I've done one on uh, that was entitled "Samurai Warrior Queens." Um, oh wow! Which was quite exciting. <laughs> Um, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I've done I've done things on the South Asian collections. Um, yeah, the, the filming can just go anywhere, all over the place, entirely dependent on the project that comes in. Um, 
sort of associated with that but then on multiple different platforms we all have to um be involved with digital engagement that's an increasingly big part of what we do and how the museum interacts with its different audiences um and then at the nitty-gritty end of the scale i help with um various collections management duties um by which I mean things like auditing, um, couriering loan objects, helping with installs. Um, and then I'm oh, uh, also, uh, I'm also actively involved with um, the acquisitions process because the museum is still actively acquiring mm-hmm. things for the collection. Um, we're still building, we're still um, sort of trying to get hold of things that will help us to tell as many different stories or existing stories better um so um we 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 still have um a a budget i mean it 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 varies wildly in scale from depending on circumstances but we are still actively acquiring so i'm um involved in that process as well i'm tasked with sourcing objects putting them forward to um committee and getting those proposals through and then Sometimes even managing to buy things. It's quite, it's quite exciting when it actually all works out. It, it doesn't I'm happen at... very often. <laughs> wow, um, that's, that's a lot there. Um, it's, okay. it's, yeah, let, let, no let day just, is the same. Let, let me just start there by saying, okay, it's very like kind of sexy and dramatic to get into being an arms and armor curator by literally jousting your way in. Right? <laughs> but but that's actually not a practical approach for many people. So it's actually no. probably really useful for many listeners to hear how you did it through a, should we say, much more kind of Mundane. standard. Well, standard, like, you know, <laughs> go and get this education, then do this kind of volunteer work, then get that master's degree, then apply for these things. And with a bit of luck, this sort of thing. It's a lot more yeah. replicable. So, I mean, I was, I was... <sighs> It's so hard um, to advise people who want to get into the field Mm -hmm. because everybody's different. Everybody's Mm -hmm. got their own skills and knowledge to bring to the role. There's no set route in. Um, And as you've just mentioned, a certain amount of it, unfortunately, is luck because there's so few jobs and it's... So, you know, it's a fascinating area, as we all know, as everybody who is interested in this field knows, because they often live and breathe it. Um, And there's so few, like, professional jobs um, Mm. that enable people to do what they love um, as as their profession. And it's, 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 it's a brutal situation, I I, I know. and it, it's it's really hard to kind of of get that balance between um, just not not dissuading people because you know what right has anybody got to say don't don't pursue your dream but just be realistic um, mm-hmm. is is kind of uh, the message. I would like put out that. Don't, don't uh, get the, the 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 advice I would give is get as broad experience as possible. Don't fit yourself into that niche, um, because it's a matter of, of sometimes it is pure luck and seeing that job advert come up and being able that that's what happened to me. I, I saw the job advert, 
it, it was the right I, I was in the right place at the right time um and I had the skills that they wanted to develop um whereas um like fitting yourself into that kind of very prescribed niche right at the start of your career trajectory you you need to be kind of willing to take on that that as as broad a range of experience as possible and then hopefully an opportunity will come up um it's yeah it's hard yeah, it's but it, I, I think it's like being an actor. Like millions of people want to do it, and mm. a one in a thousand of them actually make a living at it, and one in a thousand of them actually do really well at it. And it's just there's there's most of it's luck being in the right place at the right time. It just is. Happening to it get is. Um, yeah. I mean, the, 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 don't get me wrong. There are opportunities out there, um, yeah. and um, hopefully, those opportunities are growing in number. Um, you know that the museum world is extremely mindful of the need to expand and engage and bring in all different types of knowledge and expertise um, in order to be able to share the collections um, on a more level playing field. Yeah. Um, so it's it will hopefully get better and continue to improve um but it is it's it's not easy it isn't easy um now you mentioned digitization earlier and are you can you tell us a bit about how you're digitizing the collection because listeners to the show who heard my uh, conversation with craig johnson we discussed in the oak shop collection they're taking these 3d images of the objects and they're putting those online so people can kind of get as close as you can get to actually picking it up and swinging it around through a screen Um, yeah so are you guys doing that sort of thing or is it something different or tell us about it uh, i'm delighted that you have asked me this um go for it because it's a great question um and it taps straight into a project that I've been really excited to be involved in for the past few years actually now coming I I can't believe that much time has passed um since they initially approached us um but I've been working with a group called um the Sikh Museum Initiative um Mm -hmm. and they established a project um which goes by the title of the anglo sikh virtual museum anglo sikh um, virtual museum okay yeah um and it, they managed to get heritage lottery funding um to support it um, and basically the, the the main idea is to source um anglo sikh objects from various institutions across the uk um, things with really kind of um, what does Anglo Sikh mean in this context? Anglo Sikh, by which I mean um, objects of Sikh heritage, mm-hmm. um, which are in this country by one means or another and have a great deal of relevance to the Anglo the British Sikh community. Well, Sikh right. communities um, across the world. 
um, but particularly um, as this is a UK project for UK um, Sikh culture. Um, so, um, yeah, so the, the, the basically the, the aim was to bring together um, these objects of significant um, cultural heritage all together in one place um through the means of 3d technology oh wow yeah it's it's brilliant um so what they so if if i just use the objects that they've used from our collection as an example which they've also applied to you know the other pieces that they've incorporated um what they what they did was they chose three objects from our collection so they um selected a a helmet with a bowl that was forged in the shape of a Sikh turban um, oh, wow. with a male, a male neck guard. Sorry, I'm that enthusiastic that I've just pulled my own earpiece out. Just a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so um, a helmet forged in the shape of... It's a metal helmet bowl forged yeah. in the shape of a Sikh turban with a male neck defence. Mm-hmm. Um, beautifully decorated with um, gold overlay um Really stunning piece. Um, a gorgeous shield um, that is made out of um, crucible steel. Um, oh, wow. Your listeners may know that um, by the, its more popular term of woots or Damascus. Mm-hmm. It's often referred to as watered steel or Damascus steel. Well, one of the several iterations that can be referred to as Damascus steel. That's a whole confusing issue in its own right. Anyway, the shield is formed from crucible steel. Um, Again, beautifully decorated, um, quite a traditional form of um, defence. And then the final object that they picked was our very well-known Akali turban. Um, Now, the Akali Nihangs were a well-known band of religious warriors um, who uh, were tasked with being at the vanguard of fighting for the Sikh faith um, and its defence. And they wear these very um, instantly recognisable blue turbans um, built up quite high and they they absolutely bristle with weapons um, so they're usually surrounded by quoits um, uh, so our example has quoits um, uh, with sharpened edges all the, arranged all the way up the turban um, and then it's got small swords um, and uh, silver wire wrapped around which gives it extra defensive capabilities um, and then there's kind of a um, a sort of totemic motif arranged in metal up the front, um, which uh, has a lot of symbolic significance for protection. Um, how much does it weight? It's quite light. Um, I mean, bearing That's mind a lot it's, of metal. Ca- it's 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 a mixture. I mean, it's got a lot of weapons on it, um, but they're all quite light we- mm-hmm. we- metal weapons. Um, and then it's obviously on a textile substructure, um, which in itself is a piece of armour because it wraps around the Sikh hair. Uh, the, mm. the Sikhs are well known for not cutting their hair, um, partly for uh, because it's a sign of their faith um, uh, to to uh, to not cut um, cut 
cut their hair but also because when it's wound up in a turban um it's actually a brilliant defense against sword yeah, thrusts it's an arming cap yeah it it, yeah. it it cushions that force and that impact um so yeah um but this uh, so that this was the last object that they picked to photograph and convert to um a 3d model um and then what they've done with that they, they took really detailed photography um and then um, what one of the um, gentlemen involved in um, the Seat Museum Initiative has his own 3D um, design consultancy. Okay. Um, so obviously he's brilliantly placed to convert these photos into fantastic interactive 3D models. Wow. Um, and the point of the anglo Seat Virtual Museum um, is to bring these models to to life um through multiple different interfaces um so these objects are now live on their website um okay. the Anglo I, I will put a i will find it and put a link in the show notes. yeah if you can that would be yeah, great course, yeah. um so uh our the royal armory's objects are up there along with objects from all these other institutions bringing um kind of this um fascinating insight into seek culture i mean from our perspective it's it's predominantly seek martial culture um but they've got um kind of hand ornaments up and jewelry up there um so not just arms and armor but also... no it's, it's not just arms and armor um but obviously um we we would like to build on that because um they've, they've also had very very successful events with um where they put um 3d interactive stations where people can put on the headsets and oh, they wow. can yeah so they can they can get up so close and personal with these objects in a way that they just cannot do when an object is static behind glass mm. um for, for, for various reasons we have to have quite low level lighting um in in the in the gallery so it's very hard to pick out those details so even though the seat museum initiative isn't claiming to have created exact replicas that i mean that's one of the beauties of working with them that they're very careful to make sure that people know that this is this is one take uh one interpretation of these objects they're not claiming um total accuracy or but mm-hmm. but it's it's their kind of interactive impression and it means that people can have this entirely different um relationship with those objects they can turn them around they can they can look inside yeah. and they can pick out elements of the detail that they just you just can't appreciate um uh, from a static display and for that reason, that's what we're hoping to progress to next. We're, we're, we're actually um, working um, with the Seat Museum Initiative um, to put the, the results of what they've done for this project um, in our gallery oh, wow. as a kind yeah, of yeah. installation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, I mean, it's very much a work in progress at the moment. Um, so, uh, Wouldn't it be cool if, you, if you've got that... that- turban with with the quoits around it in, in a thing and right next to it you put on a vr headset or something and that you is exactly pick it up what and we're swing. hoping yeah that would be so yeah, cool that, but can I, I just have a request yeah please somewhere put the weights at, at actual dimensions and weights because it's one thing that that 
all of my sword friends get so frustrated about when it's, they see yeah. they see the details. Like, we want to make a replica of this, and we have the length, and we have the dimensions, and we have the pictures telling what it is, but we need to know how much it weighs. Yeah, it's so true, because with that, that is an essential factor in understanding an object (laughs) you can't uh, and it's uh, and you're right um uh, quite a lot of the time um that information either isn't included at all Mm -hmm. um or it's um you know it's so easy when it's one person inputting for a mistake to have happened yeah. somewhere along the line. And then it takes decades to come back to a record and someone goes, I'm really not sure that that sword can weigh 50 kilograms. It's literally a typo that's happened yeah. and, and then it's been um, kind of transferred between various different collections computer systems and yeah. it, it's been mis- misinterpreted and then it, it just comes up as bizarre um and 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 anything sword related if you could put point of balance there as well that'd be brilliant anything kind of long and pointy point okay i will mass and point of balance it will make all the difference in the world for for this particular project we don't actually have a sword involved well, no, that, that's moment, fine, which that's is, fine, but, which but is this will expand bit of an omission um but, but we it will expand um, and will, it'll go on to other things so, so well that's what we're hoping um so this this is the starting point mm. um uh, but um the seat museum initiative um would like to use that as a foundation um to sort of progress to look at the collection more widely i mean as as your listeners may well know um the site in leeds is not the only royal armory site mm-hmm. um we also have um the artillery collection down at um which is mostly based down at fort nelson in hampshire which is a palmerston fort um but it's um so we've got quite a few seek um guns down there um and um we've also got the historic home at the tower of london um the white tower um we don't have that much of the collection still based there but we've still got some very important objects down there um so it's again it's that kind of idea of bringing things together in a place that people can appreciate them as a kind of broader collection um they know where to go they know where to look at the stuff um and it's it's developing that research as part of that process and inputting that information um and it's yeah uh, it's 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 getting again getting that balance um and appreciating all the different sorts of information that people are actually interested in mm. um because it's it's only as good as what you put in what you get yeah. out <laughs> um and uh, yeah is, so that means that we need to undertake so much consultation and um engagement to understand what it is that people want to know mm. yeah i point about for us for us it's it's dimensions mass point of balance that's most of what I mean. Okay, vibrational nodes would be awesome if you could figure that. I don't, <laughs> I don't think you want to go slapping the flat of a of a you know, three hundred year old sword to see how it wobbles. That, that's probably not. Possibly not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, just just if you get the chance, you know, just feel free. You know. Yeah. 
there, there are people there are people who will be very happy with you if you do that um okay and we've also mentioned a bit about um where the objects come from and uh this is actually it's a question that comes from one of my patrons so okay. um what are your feelings about the circumstances under which items ended up in the collection because i mean some of them pretty much have to be effectively colonial loot if you'll forgive the uh expression no you're um, right some of it and, is and there's there's a whole there's a massive discussion going on sort of worldwide in lots of different contexts about this fundamental issue yeah so i know you're not speaking for the armories that they have their own official policies and stuff but how how do you feel about these things um, it's it's very a very tricky issue um it's uncomfortable um it needs to be acknowledged and it's important to take that acknowledgement forward in what I, whatever action is appropriate now i think it's for our particular collection i think it's important to remain aware of its nature it's it's arms and armor and that means that aggression conflict defeat dominance um these are all often inalienable parts of the stories that it tells now the legacies of the british empire and other empires are definitely a part of that there's no escaping from that fact um and it informed that that legacy informs a significant element of the context around how a lot of that collection um sort of arrived as, as part of the museum um and decolonization work is currently escalating and it will need to play a really clear role in how the museum engages with its collection and its audiences in the future but sort of reimagining um the collection through a lens um like that needs to take well i think needs to remain balanced and it needs to take account of um a sort of awareness that conquest and dominion have been enacted across the globe by innumerable civilizations mm-hmm. um, since the dawn of man, basically. It's it's an inherent part of human nature. Um, so I think I think that's an important broader story to bear in mind and placing disproportionate emphasis on sort of current very grounded perceptions um in sort of that in that are kind of very enduring a kind of victor vanquished relationship which is based on recent history mm-hmm. um at the expense of illuminating sort of more universal narratives also poses a risk of a museum such as ours appearing quite um condescending yeah, if, sure. if that's if that's the right way to put it and it would ultimately do all of the stories and histories that we can represent on that global level of activity mm-hmm. a bit of a disservice if it's taken too far so i'm saying it needs to be acknowledged and it needs to 
play a very important role in how we reassess um, how we present and, and share knowledge and power and ownership. Um, but we've got to keep that kind of overarching awareness in place as well. Um, also, I think it's quite important to um, remember that aggression and control and repression, these aren't... I know we're a museum of arms and armour and weapons are designed to hurt, inflict hurt and, and kill and and maim and, you know, that, that that's, that's part of their reason for being and their makeup. Um, but th- those sort of negative, aggressive aspects aren't always the main contributing factors between, behind um, the sort of production and use of the objects and the collecting activity that went on around it, regardless of the com- uh, sort of the countries or the communities that are involved. Um, so it's, I think it's important to remain mindful of other narratives that objects which may have a colonial connection, they may not, um, but that th- they have other aspects to them. So they can be symbols of friendship, diplomacy, mm-hmm. collaboration, um, sports, interests, trade activity, um, development of technology, um, uh, trans- you know, knowledge exchange, influence of different forms of artisanship um it's important not not to just park all of those aspects in sure. favor do, do, do you know what i mean yeah absolutely they're multifaceted there's so many interpretations and understandings that can come out of them and i think we need to as well as um acknowledging um problematic aspects and the legacies that are very definitely come with that and have to be faced I think we need to also weave in the kind of positive interaction and engagement that's happened through and as a result of those objects um and bring those stories to light as well um because I think that's that that creates a better platform for understanding and and kind of mutual appreciation um one final thing um for us in particular again going back to the nature of our collection and what we're tasked with um kind of holding for the nation the national collection of arms and armor um war booty it it, it, is by no means uh, uh, the, the main part of our collection are even, you know, one of the biggest elements. Um, but it's it's quite difficult to work out where to draw the line um, in terms of ethical implications, where that material sits. Because um, obviously, I mean, a, a, a victorious powers have looted um, following yeah, sure. conflict um, since... As I say, since time began, um, one of the reasons they go to war in the first place is to exactly. you know, get the money. Yeah. Um, so you know, as these issues come up, it it, it has to be taken on a case by case basis. Sure. Um, you know, you can't you can't have one solution to fit all. Um, but 
if say if I was to go back to the so the Anglo Sikh mm-hmm. objects in our collection, um, they came in as as kind of a, a a result of a variety of different processes. Um, so quite a few of them were purchased following the Great Exhibition of eighteen fifty one as super superlative examples of craftsmanship um and acquired to educate british artisans um so that's something that people often don't realize um but having said that um that is one group of our um sikh collections but a large part of it came in as a result of east india company collecting activity immediately in the aftermath of the anglo-sikh wars of the 1840s um, and the East India Company was specifically tasked with um, by the Board of Ordnance, who oversaw the armories at the tower, um, with collecting complete sets of um, South Asian arms and armour with a particular focus on the Sikhs and the Afghans because basically the Sikhs and the Afghans had brought the British fairly close to defeat. Yeah, they, they had the best... The yeah. best militaries, and so there was. This... And there was this fascination in Britain with this kind of revered and feared enemy, and so that there was a sort of need to appreciate and understand um, and mm. get get a much better idea of of kind of this this fo- this foe that had been made infamous in 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 the meeting. Um, in the press and um, through the experience of people coming back. It's, so it's, you know, they were specifically tasked with collecting um, in quite a systematic way arms and armour to represent um, uh, what what Sikh warriors were wearing um, when they were facing up to the British armies. Um, wow. And so that is, yeah, that is definitely... Um, war booty after a fashion um, you can't get away from that fact um, particularly because a lot of it came out of the um, the Toshkana the treasure house in Lahore um, and it was all per, you know selected by the British le- uh, military leaders and, and sent back um, to Britain specifically for display and incorporation in collections um, but my point sorry my very long winded no, point that's here okay. Um, is that yes that that came in as part of a quite a problematic context and that is going to upset a lot of people now and um, particularly if it's not transparent and fully acknowledged yeah. which we are working on um it's not perfect at the moment by any means but um we we want to get this narrative th- this information out there so that there's a there's a better understanding of, mm. of how it was assembled and amassed and sent back and kind of put in place as a very important collection but not necessarily in the context that a lot of people would like it to have remained in um but how it my point being, you know, is that different to, for instance, French arms and armour that was looted after Waterloo? Because that probably doesn't have the same reaction no, now. No. Um, it is, how is it more justified for us to have looted equipment from Waterloo? Okay, I, have an, the- I, I have a, a, a story for you that might kind of might be might be useful. Um, I need to fact check this, 
but this is the story I was told when I used to live in Finland and there's a little town on the coast of Finland called Kokkola. And many moons ago, um, when the British Navy was doing stuff with Russia and stuff in the Baltic Sea, uh, a bunch of British sailors took a boat and ended up beaching it on Kokkola and going in and trying to raise hell, raid the town, what have you. And they all got slaughtered by the Finns and they're all buried there, right? And of course, the town of Kokkola kept the boat, right? And it's there in the town square in Kokkola. Right, so you can see it. It is the only British naval vessel still in enemy hands. Right? And the story goes, in the 1980s, the Royal Navy said, okay, um, we'd like our boat back, please. And we were happy to pay to have like the whole, all the streets in the town repaved, because that's something you have to do a lot in Finland because of the winter tyres for the spikes on kind of grind up the surface. So it's quite an expensive process. For the Royal Navy, it was like, no, we'll pay for the streets to be repaved um, if you'll give us our boat back. To which the Cockerlands replied, actually, no, we quite like our boat. Thank you very much. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but nobody can reasonably say that that boat was Finnish imperial aggression stealing stuff from poor old Britain. Right. No. And, and everyone is like, oh, well, that's, that's a David and Goliath story where David is kind of cocking the snoot at Goliath and, and everyone smiles when they hear it. Mm. Right, um, but then, so it. But then recently, it's, it goes mine, back to that yeah. kind of Victor Vanquish right. relationship um, that I was talking about. It's it's far more in in um, in the world as it is today. It's it becomes far more difficult to reasonably justify holding on um, to the former possessions of yeah the the, the recently yeah and, and um, to go back to france defeated yeah um, britain didn't then colonize france and extract no. massive wealth out of it for the next couple of hundred years no um the french sort of took over their own country again napoleon got sent off to yes Elba, so that, that, that is that that is definitely something that has to be taken into account um it's as I say, it's it's a it's something where we're feeling our way mm. with um, a lot at the moment, and it needs to be open to discussion. Yeah, um, sure. That it, there's so many complexities um, that need to be taken into account, and as I say, it's it's a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's if you're telling a global universal story about arms and armor. Um, it's just that point that taking of trophies or loot from enemies has been that widespread phenomenon mm-hmm. um, throughout human history, and that needs to be a part of the way that sure. we consider and present the collection. But at the same time, you know, we need to make the most of the opportunities to reflect and kind of share that ownership um, Mm -hmm. and expand our interpretation and our understanding. Um, Yeah. Okay. Um, All right, I have a a really specific question for you. This is another one from from one of my patrons. Um, Somebody called Dr. Alfred Geibig said during a private tour through the Asian and African arms collection at the Weste Coburg in Germany... 
that in this cultural sphere, the quality of steel and level of craftsmanship diminishes the further you move away from India. Um, and my patron would like to know whether that reflects your impression. Have fun with uh, that. Go ahead. No, <laughs> that's the short no. answer. <laughs> okay. No, fair. Great. Um, okay. No, I can I can expand on that if please you want. Please do. Yes, um, please. Uh, I mean, it's 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 quite a complex idea, um, sort of rolled into quite a succinct sentence. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, the quality of Indian or South Asian steel is legendary. Um, South Asia was a major producer and exporter of that crucible steel that I mentioned earlier, um, which is incredibly hard. Um, it makes fantastic sword blades. Uh, it's used quite a lot in armour. Um, and depending on how it's forged, um, the appearance is absolutely exquisite it's just gorgeous it's but you stunning. get this beautiful yeah. rippled watered effect on well it, it comes up as being on the surface of the steel but it's actually integral to its chemical structure mm. um and makeup um it's in, it's intrinsic to the material um it's not just a surface effect um but yeah so india um was a big big producer of this material it was exported across the globe highly sought after in europe um and well and across asia um and obviously there was um large communities of highly trained craftsmen um which could travel um so that you know loads of them were coming out of the indian courts um and um, they had very, very specialist skills. Um, but I don't think it's accurate to suggest that India was the main or the only hub. Um, okay. So, like, if, if you just... I mean, I can pick various miscellaneous examples, and I'm, I'm sure they'd be better connected if I, um, <laughs> if, I if I could slide them more lucidly. But um, uh, if I just sort of pick out a few... Um, so we've got uh, Persia... For example, um, Iran, um, Iranian swords, um, they're world-renowned. Um, yeah. So you, you've got that kind of Damascus. So Damascus, um, really important hub of arms and armour production. Interestingly, go, going back to what I was saying before about this kind of confusion over what what, what it means if you say Damascus steel. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, one of the... Um, versions of that is that um, Damascus produced um, this crucible steel um, most of the time not um, it was imported and then manufactured in Damascus into the exquisite sword blades that we recognise as being typically Persian um, in style um, Isfahan uh, also a really important centre of arms and armour manufacture again particularly swords um, and one of the most famous swordsmiths of all time um, depending on whether you think he existed or not um, Asadullah of Isfahan um, this signature uh, of Asadullah um, crops up on so many sword blades across several centuries. Um, it was absolutely impossible that he could 
conceivably have made all of them. Um, he would have had to have been about 400. It's like, like Andrea Ferrara. Yes, very, very similar, yes. yes. Um, so, um, I mean, again, it could have been... So it, it is thought that he probably did exist, probably early 17th century, um, and but the products that came out of him could have been um, kind of his workshop, maybe, later generations... Um, or people imitating him and using the signature cartouche as a kind of stamp of quality or just out-and-out fakes. Um, You know, that's a famous swordsmith. I'll put that name on the blade. um, There wasn't much in the way of trading standards. No, no, quite. The the, the standard can vary wildly. But the point being, some, you know, the, the reason for this you know, world famous reputation is because a lot of those blades are very, very high quality. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Iran, um, really important center. Um, jumping across Japanese metalwork, mm, um, Japanese swords are legendarily high quality. Um, you, you know, you've got you've got the case that you know, th- through passing on all of those traditions um, and that incredible level of expertise um, and artisanship, we've got Japanese swordsmiths today who are counted as living national treasures yeah. because they're, you know, the, 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 what they produce is of such awesome quality. I mean, it's poetry in steel. Um, okay. If you watch yeah. a Japanese blade being made, and yeah, it's just, a fabulous the, process. The level of appreciation that they go into, and they do it wearing white. They're doing blacksmith. They're doing blacksmithing wearing white robes. Yes. How the hell do you do that? I, I, I I've I've seen it um, in Japan. Yeah. I watched a, a swordsmith in action. It was one of the most fascinating experiences of my life, and he didn't get a speck on him. Uh, yeah, I don't know how you do that. I mean, I, I do woodwork um, and stuff, and I, I usually change into scruffy clothes before I. <laughs> but it, but for them, it's 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 a, it's the equivalent of a religious ceremony. Sure. Producing those blades. Well, the, 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 the sword the is one up. of the symbols of, of Shinto. You've got the sword, yes. the jewel, and yeah. the mirror. So I mean, the amount it's like creating of, a crucifix for us. Yeah, um, the, the the amount of ritual. Um, and kind of cultural appreciation that goes into it um, is absolutely phenomenal. It's um, it, it, it blows the mind. And when I saw this happening, um, I went out to um, Japan a couple of years ago and um, saw saw this process in action firsthand. And it so many of the things that I'd read and only been able to sort of vaguely visualise in my head up until that point kind of clicked into place mm-hmm. um, just through observing um, that, yeah. that, that activity. It was, it was amazing. But, yeah, it's, it, it, it's incredible. The, the level of precision um, that they achieve is, is just absolutely incredible. Um, I, I guess your experience is a bit like the difference between seeing an object behind glass and actually getting to pick it up and play with it. Yeah. 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 Um, you can't substitute for that. 
So okay. I, I should probably inter- yeah, I should probably interject here that that you and Dr. Alfred Geivik, who I know nothing about, you, you, there's nothing <laughs> there's nothing between you, and it's perfectly possible that the person who asked this question has misrepresented Dr. Geivik's position. So well, also, I just wanted to get that on the record. Yeah, before, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not disagreeing of, you know, with a personal yeah. yeah. opinion. Um, yeah. It's just my own impressions yeah, don't sure. quite tally with yeah. that representation. But um, it, it, it's just an in, sort of moving on to a kind of broader mm. overview of that kind of um, impression. Um, it just goes to show that appreciation can be a very, very subjective thing, and what pleases one set of sensibilities may hold very little appeal for somebody from a very different cultural background. So, your idea of what counts as high quality and um, preeminent craftsmanship um, it, it may change. I mean, what is very meaningful to one person may have absolutely jack or relevance to somebody else um so i, I mean the 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 one um that springs to mind um i mean take the um incredibly elaborate metalwork that goes into making um a sort of malaysian caress blade mm, yeah um th- those are some absolutely stunning pieces um, and yet you go back to catalogues of several decades ago and they're not exactly complimentary, not shall we say. <laughs> yeah, um, I've seen so, some of those catalogues. Yeah. Like, and yeah, but actually, just look at it. Look at the exactly, layers in the exactly. steel. Look they're, at the way just, the, the flambergie waves are just so perfectly done. The waves, done. the pamor, which is yeah. the, the, the pattern, um, yeah. the, the pattern welded. I mean, we've got a couple of examples in the collection that have... Somehow, I don't, I, you know, I, I'm sure, um, you know, a, a, a Malaysian swordsmith would be able to explain it to me if, if the traditions haven't passed out of all knowledge, which can happen, unfortunately. Um, but we've got a couple of examples in the collection where one side of the blade has an entirely different pattern and setup to the other side of the blade. <laughs> That's just showing off. I know, I know, and you, and you just think, how on earth did they do that? that? And yeah. it's uh, you know, without without that deep kind of inheritance of tradition and and understanding and appreciation, um, you, you can't you can only observe on a superficial level. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, for me, um, it it's. It's a bit more nuanced um, than that. Yes, India did have, or, or does have, um, you know, hugely um, superior uh, production of steel and of um, the artisan skills that then enable that to be fashioned into absolutely exquisite arms and armour. Um, but they weren't the only place. Fair enough. As far as I'm okay. concerned. <laughs> now, now we're, we're, we're running close to time, so um, let me jump on to the next thing. I have a couple of questions that I usually ask my guests, and um, my first of these is, what is the best idea you've not acted on? <laughs> <laughs> this is going to sound really weird. Um, to learn horseback archery. That's a great idea. I, well, for me it is. It's, I mean, I've, I've done a little bit, and it's great fun. 
Well, that, that's it. Always looks great fun. I am so green with envy about one of so my friends who's um, Finnish. Um, he's a professional arms and armour conservator. Lasse um, Vakala. Yes. Yes. Lasse and I are old friends. We've known each other 25 years. Well, Lasse is just... I don't know how he does everything he does, but as you will know, um, you know, he's... you know he's a professional conservator so he's got huge knowledge of arms and armor from that perspective Uh, but he 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 lives on a farm so he can build and test stuff like a trebuchet Uh, he doesn't live on a farm he lives in a flat in Helsinki but he has access to his family's summer cottage outside Helsinki so he has space to do that stuff yeah, yeah yeah Um, and he's also learnt to ride brilliantly well as an adult, which is tricky yeah. in itself. Sure. Um, and he's now doing horse archery. I which know. He keeps, and I'm just like, like this is this is just not fair. He's um, living so, his best life. <laughs> yes, he is. It's it's amazing, but it gives him that just inherent understanding and appreciation and perspective that as yeah. somebody who it whose job revolves around the book learning and the careful preservation of museum objects. Yeah. Um, but not that first-hand experience of how it actually feels to wield mm. a weapon and use it. So I want to know what it actually feels like and understand those, a little bit about the skills that warriors need to develop. So I rode a lot growing up. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a rider, um, but I just can't fight on horseback, and it's such. It can be arranged. An, I know well, it can be arranged, but I don't live anywhere near any of the centres that seem to sort of give you that grounding. <laughs> um, okay. So I, I, I don't know. I just it, it's such a horse archery and and cavalry in general. It's such a fundamental part of the narrative, like the main narrative for arms and armour of the part of the collection that I look after. Um, and I just think it'd be a really, excuse the arms and armour pun, but it'd just be an extra string to my bow to have that kind of practical um, skill that gives me, I'm not saying it would, it would inform in any major way because you need to, you need to do it like they've done it, you know, from train from before they can walk essentially and live that way of life. Um, and I could never appreciate that, but just just that thrill of getting to grips with a composite bow and loosing an arrow and finding a target. I have some friends. Gallop. I have some friends to introduce you to. Oh, okay. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll 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 drop you an email or after we're done. Um, okay. Uh, the, 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 the one problem I might have with that is that I'm currently seven months pregnant. Well, congratulations. So I would suggest perhaps doing it after the baby. Yeah, I need to leave it a few months. Oh, I've had a brilliant idea. Okay, you will have access to an actual baby, right? Yes. You can you can you can see what happens when you get the child to ride before it walks, and you can actually train the child to be a horseback archer from birth. That's a brilliant idea. It is, isn't it? I will put that into yeah. Thank you. You're very welcome. Yeah, so that will be that will become the best idea that I impose upon my child. That, absolutely, because this is what we do as parents, right? We, we, we... Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, I have two kids, and when they were very little, they loved to sword fight with me, but by the time they were like 
six or so, they nah, boring. Oh. Daddy's boring old swords. Yeah, oh, good. yeah, but you know. Oh, they should count themselves very lucky. Well, to have that background. Well, I mean, some some of their friends think that my swords are cool, but but my actual my own children, nah. So, so actually, it, it, your your project of of making your child a horseback archer, it may <laughs> not work terribly well after about the first five years. So make sure you get plenty of get plenty get of, in there early. Get in there early, and yeah, yeah, rather well, impressionable and <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay, so my, my last question is somebody gives you a million pounds or dollars to spend improving um, sort of knowledge of arms and armour and stuff. Oh, gosh. Why? Where would you put the money? Ah, <sighs> uh, the, the idea of having resources at my fingertips like that <laughs> when we're in the heritage sector and every penny has to be scraped. Yeah. Um. <sighs> I think for me, it's all about access. Yeah. Um, to be able to spread knowledge, um, it's about the capacity of museums and other institutions to make their collections. And by that, I mean um, including archives, libraries, mm-hmm. catalogues, the, the other resources as well as the objects themselves, as available in as many ways as possible. Um because in this so in this current day and age, um, the opportunities for making collections ever more accessible in a huge variety of ways to multiple different audiences, both established and new, um, it's never been greater, um, and the opportunities just keep escalating. But it's having the capacity and the resources to do the work and foster that active engagement to bring it about effectively. And so it's it's not just coming from the same sources and producing yeah. the same information. Because um, access helps transparency. Um, that, in turn, helps towards the sharing of perceived ownership, knowledge pooling, knowledge exchange, knowledge growth diversification um it helps with decolonization work and inclusivity um it's it's the vehicle by which we can put so you know what i was saying earlier about we need to make sure action happens mm-hmm. as a result of all these good intentions i think this is one way that we can really aspire to achieve that um in a realistic way um so we get the collections out there and then people can use them and share them and know them. And but we've all been there. If you don't know what's in an institution, you've got so little to go on. And you know I know how frustration. Yeah. Like well, you and I both. We know how frustrating it is when you think an object might be in a particular collection, but you don't know who to contact. You've got you know. Yeah. You want you want to know more generally about a particular institution's holdings, and there just doesn't seem to be a good, easy way of finding out. And I'm a curator, for goodness sake. If I can't find out, yeah, you know, yeah, it's 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 very limiting. Um, but even though digitization of of collections is like a major push for us and all other institutions. 
around the world mm -hmm. right now for uh, for all of the multitude of different benefits that can bring it takes so much time and so much resources even with all the modern technology yeah and as i say it's only as good as what you put in um what yeah. you get out of it so um a million pounds towards nice. Nice. putting as much arms and armor out there as possible on multiple different platforms would be um very very welcome i think that'd be that would be a good use of money at the moment. Well, if I had the money, I'd give it to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but then I, I do say that's almost all, I guess. Well, but I mean, it's, it's part of our core um, work. Mission. It's what's yeah. been so refreshing over the past couple of years because there's been this really big emphasis on trying to improve core cataloguing. And part of that is because we've got a collection online interface mm -hmm. now. Um, so you go on Royal Armoury's collections online Every object should have an online record, as long as it's in our collection, mm -hmm. um, not not loan objects. But um, our, our all of our objects should have an online record. Wow! But with a collect, you know, a national collection that goes into the many, many, many thousands of objects, yeah. it's. You know, it's it's very much a drip process, and it's an ongoing rolling process. We're doing it all the time, trying to, um, yeah. you know, put so it's a, input it's all, more it's always data. It's a good thing that you don't have too much new stuff coming in because that would just add to the backlog. Yeah, uh, it's it's so true, but uh, but that is the main way that you start to become really fascinated by objects that you've never even looked at before. You know, yeah. I'm I'm. I'm the curator of an area of the collection. I still go into stores and see things that my eye has just passed over before and I've got no idea what it is. And, you know, you have to... It's only by doing that kind of ground-level-up analysis um, and, and then you put the information out there and somebody has a totally different take on it and yeah. it asks a question a and you way, think, or, oh, yeah. goodness, I don't know. How on earth... Yeah, well, why? Why is that like that? Um, and then that sends you on a whole new research trajectory <laughs> and them on a new research trajectory. And it's, it's, that's what I mean about the, you know, that, that's what facilitates that knowledge growth. But if it's just one person putting out feelers, you're rather limited and restricted. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, that's a great answer. So thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Natasha. It's been really interesting getting to know you. It's been lovely to talk to you. It's, it's been fascinating for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know all these thoughts that are just whirling around in there. Um, so thank you. That's been, um, that's, that's been a great way to spend a morning. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Natasha. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And thanks to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Eduardo Albert about all sorts of things, including Viking swords and Alfred the Great and apparently even Warhammer 40k.
And if you don't know what that is, don't worry, I didn't either. And he explains it all in the show. Make sure you don't miss it. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening. I will see you next week. Thank you.